Hello, friend. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. I'm so glad to welcome you into the same place. It's a place of inclusivity and safety for any conversation to be heard. The safe place began as a image in my head of a wooden cabin on the lake. My own place of mental safety. And I welcome you here to listen to discussions on mental and physical health mental illness and mental and physical disability. You may hear stories that inspire. You may hear stories that make you cry, both in sadness and happiness. But always told from a place of truth. And we hold dear the principles of love, kindness and compassion. Now, with that all said, it's time to hunker down, get comfortable, so we're ready to welcome you in too. A safe place. Hello and welcome to the safe place, Sam. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So, as is very much tradition um, on the show, I like to hand straight over to my guests and and over to you to to share your story and and, and we'll have a conversation about it. Well, having heard some really good podcasts, I'm hoping that I don't let the side down. I've been a type 1 diabetic since 1977. I was four years old when I was diagnosed. And it's been a very interesting life as a result. I think I'd been quite boring otherwise. (laughs) Tell me more about boring. What's your definition of boring? I think life, life would have been quite easy. I was middle class. Um, we didn't have much money when I was little, but that was because my dad dropped out of university and um, I came along as the result of an accident with a cap. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was not really planned. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I was quite precocious as a little girl and my mum was doing her um, residency that you have to do probation for um, two years as a pharmacist, pharmacologist, and she got pregnant while she was sitting her finals with me. Excellent time to get pregnant. So, brilliant timing, Mum. Well done with that. <laughs> so I always say I've got two degrees as a result, but, you know, I've definitely had all the stress of two degrees. Um, but I spent a great deal of time with my grandparents as a result. Um, my little brother came along after my mum qualified and she went part time at that point. So during the week, my mum would look after us and then my dad would look after us on Saturday when mum had her locum shift um, in various places. And every um, third Sunday, she would have a locum as well. And like I say, very normal, boring um, childhood up until the summer I started nursery school and I remember because my brother was still at that age still in a pram pretty much he, he was quite small and we'd walk into town um, three days a week and I got to the point where I'd sit on the pram to get home and mum started doing this because I was a bit slow um, but it started to be that my legs hurt and I'd had a bit of a bug. It had been quite a nasty bug. I'd been in bed for two days. 
And I just didn't get over it. The, the walking got harder and harder. And by the time my mum took me to the doctor, I was having a little bit of trouble walking across the room. So like, like most people, we had a, a large 1970s lounge and walking the length of the lounge just got too too hard. And when the width of the lounge got a bit of an effort, <laughs> mum took me to the doctor. And the doctor said, she looks perfectly all right to me. And that was the Friday. So mum went to work on the Saturday and bought a testing kit. So on Sunday morning, about an hour after I'd, I'd first been to the toilet, my mum said, can you go again? I go, yeah, 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 no problem. Because <laughs> at this point I'm peeing like, <laughs> like there's nothing <laughs> to stop me. And um, she popped a tablet into a test tube. And I was a bit, bit aggrieved by this because it's a potty. And, you know, I was four. I was yeah, yeah. the toilet. I was a big girl. <laughs> yeah. And my urine... If your blood sugar is in normal kind of range, it's between it's normally blue, blue or pale green. If it's got a lot of um, sugar in the urine, it goes brown. Mine was nearly black. By the time the tablet had dissolved, it was the darkest brown. It was kind of off the scale. And my mum looked at it, and I remember her face kind of, oh, <laughs> you know. And I had lunch, and lunch was the last meal I ate until I got some insulin. So Monday morning, we all got dressed to go in the car. I wore a nice dress and <laughs> it was December, so I had a nice coat on. And we dropped my dad off at work, which is a bit of an adventure because we don't normally do that. Yeah, yeah. And then we go to the hospital. And mum had kind of explained things. You know, I was going to have insulin injections. I knew I was going to have insulin injections and that would be forever. When you fall, forever doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> forever is the next Everything four hours. Is, yeah. So you go, yeah, 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 that's all right, as long as it makes me better, because that was the promise, it made you feel better. And go in and they run some blood tests and they make us wait. I mean, they talk about waiting times now, but it was dark and mum had no way to go and contact my dad. So she took my little brother and drove to get my dad. And by the time she came back, she'd let the nurse know that she was going but coming back by the time she came back you see, I always remember it as me having a reasonable discussion about this not being what was expected because <laughs> they were trying to set up a drip and I was arguing the toss it's a bit like a bit Calvin-esque maybe <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes yeah um, and she goes and I heard you screaming she remembers it as me screaming Whereas I remember it as having this really sane, sensible conversation. This is not happening. Although I must, I must say, a four-year-old's sane conversation is probably somewhat different to a <laughs> adult's. <laughs> so, so my mum comes in, goes, "What's you know, what's happening?" And the registrar takes her out and says, "Will you please talk to your daughter?" I heard this afterwards. Will you please talk to your daughter? I need to set up a drip. I'm worried about her veins collapsing. I've never had somebody walk in with blood sugar that high. So it was pretty close, I think. And they, they dilly-dallied all day. <laughs> so at the, that point, um, they set up a drip. And I remember being in, because the minute you have a drip, you're, you're admitted, let's face it. And I remember sitting there, all the other children in 
kind of this full wing, full bed, full cottage. They put me in a cot as well. <laughs> I'm going, I'm a grown up. <laughs> so they put me in a cot and they set up the drip. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, because I can't sleep, my blood sugar is really high and it's kind of interesting what's going on. So I sit and watch the drip going. And of course, the next day you're kind of better again. That it's that miraculous. That's what insulin does. And and did you feel that, or can you remember feeling that? Obviously. So my mum got shocked when I got undressed to to get into the cot. My mum was quite shocked how thin I was. Apparently, you could see my liver. Um, I I kind of because at home I'd go and get water from the toilet not from the toilet from the sink in the toilet because I could reach the sink in the toilet so I didn't get dehydrated um but she I dressed myself I had a baby brother I dressed myself to help my mum so my mum hadn't seen me kind of without my clothes on so she was really shocked at how thin I was and I've got this very round little face I've still got around this face. <laughs> so, yeah, I think she was quite shocked how thin I was. And, of course, you put the waist back on very quickly. I don't actually like being too thin. Okay. I think because of that, I associate very thin with being weak. So, yeah. Do you associate it with, with illness or, or just weakness? Weakness. Not necessarily illness, but weakness. Because I was weak, I I had nothing. There was nothing left to give. Um, and, you, and you had your drip, and and miraculously you were okay. To use possibly the wrong <laughs> word, but uh, certainly improved. Well, I had energy. I could do things. I could move yeah. without it hurting. I mean, it is literally that. I, and I've always been that way. It's not that I had the drip and then was happy if my blood sugar got high. I don't like being high. Um, it's possibly why, because in the community I always go, 45 years and I'm still in one piece, because, you know, that's not necessarily <laughs> where we end up. Yeah. Some of us don't make it that far. And I didn't realise how kind of bad it was until I started doing some research. And... If you were diagnosed before 1980, is big date in the UK because that's when we kind of got blood testing available on prescription. Yeah, yeah. So before that, it was guessing. You were guessing everything. It was all about how you felt. And, of course, the body the body will tell you exactly what you need to hear if you ask it to. <laughs> so you get used to things, so you accommodate things. And um, I've, I've never liked being high. It makes me feel quite poorly. Poorly is a good word for it, but it's, I build up acid in my blood when my blood sugar's high. Okay. Um, like all type ones, we we don't have any ability to cope with that. And does that then create a kind of liver problem? The kidneys suffer first because okay. um, there's a few things that happen. You if you get above a certain point and everybody's point is different and at different times it'll be different for each person as well. Um, the point which you start to produce ketones um, is when your body starts to consume itself to try and 
provide energy. Yeah. That's why we get so thin. Um, it is literally your body is eating itself to try and provide energy. And Which is... You can't, use, you can't use that energy. <laughs> well, I was going to say, because normally that would be part of your survival. Yes. Your body's survival instinct, to, to kind of put it in that context. But it doesn't help as a type 1. And is that is that limited to type one or is that is that similar for type two? So type twos don't tend. I mean, if you're type two for long enough without treatment, you will get ketoacidosis, and yeah. um, it's called diabetic ketoacidosis when when it gets to the level it's toxic. Um, but it, it takes a lot longer, and of course you've got so much more damage happening because you've got excess sugar in your body. And if you think of the blood vessels as being quite literally pipes, yeah. if it, like cholesterol, if you've got excess sugar, stuff can't get through. It's it yeah. So, yeah, it's quite nasty. <laughs> so how, how did you, how did you function? Because um, presumably back in the back kind in of the day it, it it was a difficult thing to understand when to give yourself in well not probably not yourself at that age but um when when to get the injections and and you know judge what was going on so you you did urine tests so i do a urine test every time i went to the toilet i do a urine test okay. and that was originally clinic test which is quite literally you have a dropper and a tablet and you put um, 15 drops of urine onto the tablet and that dissolves the tablet and the tablet turns the white colour, hopefully. Yeah. With, with luck. Yeah. Um, and then it became sticks. And cleaning tests would take a lot longer. You'd, you'd need more equipment. I probably had cleaning tests for the first three years. Okay. Then we had diet sticks. And with diet sticks came keto sticks. Um, so you start to work out how high you have to be to make the ketone bit turn pink, different colours pink. And in 1980, my mum took me to my clinician's appointment with the um, endocrinologist and said, we'd like blood testing sticks. And my mum, so I was seven going on eight, and my mum was 29. I'm very young looking with it. And he looked at my mum and he looked at me and he said, you won't understand what it means. I'm not doing that. It's a waste of time. <laughs> so my mum's got a pharmacology degree. I don't know if you know what a pharmacology degree involves, but you have to do autopsies in the first year to see what happens to bodies when they're exposed yeah. to certain drugs. So my mum <laughs> does know exactly how to run. <laughs> The ridiculous, based on data. the ridiculous ageism, sexism, everything really. I used to think everything was going on. And my mum used to wear, my mum used to dress nicely because she used to take the day off work. And I, she'd keep me out of school and we'd, we'd go and do something. I saw mm. Greece, um, the appointment for that. And I thought we were going to, to go to a restaurant and have spaghetti bolognese and see Greece every time. So I was a bit disappointed when that didn't happen. I thought that was a nice present. <laughs> so I was about I was about six and I saw Greece at the cinema. Okay. <laughs> it's funny the memories that you attach onto. I, I, I remember 
it was completely separate to my ankle issue. I, I broke my arm. Don't remember a whole lot about breaking my arm, but what I do remember is going to the cinema with my dad to see The Mask. Um, don't remember the film particularly on being at the cinema, just remember that as an event. Um, and, and that's it. That's all, that's all I remember about it. Um, and the expectation that, that if I have any more injuries, then I get more, more good things. It's funny what you associate. I, I remember being diagnosed and being given chocolate crunch and ice cream in the hospital. I mean, hospital food for diabetics is not good. Yeah, well, it's not that great anyway. <laughs> and and you, you had to eat it so you wouldn't be hypo. I mean, you're thinking, as an, as an adult, I, would, I, I sit there and think, oh, my God, they used to do this to us. <laughs> so was that, a set, was that a version of their treatment then rather than... Rather than well, kind you of... had to eat, eat your allocation. You know, if you had your injection, you had to have lunch. <laughs> that's almost a way to to put a child off of ice cream. <laughs> Actually, it was pretty good. The ice cream and chocolate crunch that I could that I could tolerate. Some things I couldn't. They they like putting custard with everything. I don't like. Yeah. Custard. Yeah, there's many reasons that I don't like custard. Hospital custard was was one of those. Not the most appealing of foods at all. But yeah, I remember that that hospital because I was in for three days. <coughs> I think it was literally they 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 used to keep you in for a week to make sure you were stabilised. And because it was before Christmas, I think my parents managed to say, look, it's a, it's a long way for us to come. We lived in a little town outside. If we take her home, you know, we're fairly smart. If you tell us what to do, we'll do it. Um, so I remember that one. I was a bit upset because Santa Claus was coming. Father Christmas was coming. <laughs> I got I missed Father Christmas, which I was a bit gutted about. <laughs> And did that did that type of thing impact you quite a lot over your your childhood in particular? You miss things. Um, yeah. People don't invite you to do things either. So if people got married, I wouldn't be invited to be a bridesmaid in case you know something happened and I just derailed the whole day. And so you're treated like this almost um, like you're incapable. Yeah. High school. Uh, well prim- primary school my first primary school so I get diagnosed in December and I start school in January so I've just about got my weight back on and I've got my school uniform I go to school for the first day and the headmistress did not believe her school was a hospital um, <laughs> because I was Born in February, I started in January, and that meant I could either do mornings or afternoons, and Mum thought it'd be easier if she took me home for lunch. So I went in the morning, and that way she had control over what happened with my lunchtime meal, because they didn't allow packed lunches, no packed lunches. You either stayed at home and had lunch, or you had school dinner. So I'm a type 1 diabetic who's <laughs> not allowed to test in school either because it's not a hospital mm-hmm. <laughs> with no control over what I'm eating. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect place to be. Fantastic. Really accessible. 
so I did reasonably well. I, who knows? Apparently I was quite bright. Um, so I kind of kept track. It was a school where you kind of progressed up the classes, not depending on your age per se, but your ability. And I stayed for three years, so I got reasonably up. And I remember one time um, my teacher talking about something. I thought, I really don't, I really feel hypo. And I put my hand up and said, I'm hypo. And the teacher went, I don't know what that means. And I just collapsed. <laughs> because the lunch hadn't had anything that was suitable. Right. It had been salad. It was summer, so it was salad. There were no carbs. <laughs> and, I mean, describe this sort of time, because a lot of people just won't, won't comprehend that people the 19, don't understand the what 1970s in, yeah. in a rural Suffolk town. Yeah. <laughs> so teachers were God. You know, you weren't you couldn't question a teacher, you couldn't complain about a teacher. <laughs> teachers were God. Um thankfully there wasn't any corp oh and I never heard of corporal punishment. There could have been corporal punishment there, but I never got in trouble, so I don't know. Um but the this happened a couple of times and my mum gave me the wrong insulin one morning. So I literally walked to school with my mum and brother, got dropped off and <laughs> passed out in the assembly. <laughs> so my mum quite literally walked home and got a phone call to say she needs to come back and get me. <laughs> and it used, to, it used to take, well, walking, because I was little, it used to take half an hour to get to school. So... <laughs> If that kind of thing happened, you didn't necessarily see it because insulin, I mean, animal insulins were incredible for, incredibly fragile. So you'd open a bottle of insulin and by the end of the month, it would be kind of dead. It yeah. wouldn't be as effective. <laughs> um, but we had this incredibly complex regime because you had different strength insulins for different times of the day. So during the day, I had a, an insulin that was half the strength as the stuff overnight. So I'd had the nighttime dose insulin at the morning dose. <laughs> so I effectively had twice as much insulin in me as I as I needed. Um, and I'm assuming that these these aren't pre-drawn up needles. These are no glass syringes. Out. Yeah, I I don't know if you've ever used a glass syringe. But a glass syringe doesn't have a stopper that stays where you put it. So when you draw up the syringe, you actually have to mechanically hold the plunger open until you get it into the location. And then if you move your hand, it just goes vump. So it's it's kind of uncontrolled. So for a child, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And bless my parents, they did the best they could. But my dad was quite needle phobic and he found that really hard. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so my big six foot tall dad. Scared of needles. Used to hate it and he'd put it off as long as possible. So I'm going, no, dad, I'm, you know, to the yeah. I really need this. <laughs> and I'm looking up at him, you know, where's my insulin? <laughs> do, do, do you think that you had. I mean, because this is still quite a young age. Do you think you had the 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 understanding of what it meant to be 
diabetic and particularly type 1 diabetic at, so that, at that age? Anybody, when they are diagnosed, has no clue. You know, best will in the world, even if you are a doctor, you have no clue. <laughs> um, so my parents knew that the pancreas, parts of the pancreas had failed because that's what the textbook said. They knew I needed insulin. They knew that because they were pharmacists that you had insulin in different types. So we had what's called a manual mix at the time. Yeah. So you'd have a dose of a short-acting insulin. Mine was Actrapid. I had Actrapid for the next 20 years. And um, you'd have a long acting as well. When I was first diagnosed, I had one injection a day. So the long acting would cover kind of um, lunchtime, evening meal and bedtime. Mm. And the morning um, at Trafford would literally cover breakfast. Yeah. And is that, and you say that, you, you had that when you were younger and then you, you just described how that's, that's changed anyway. Um, oh, so dramatically. So one of the things that we know today that we didn't know then, I have antibodies to my first instance. Okay. You can see those antibodies. Um, I had a test done five, six years ago now, and you can see those, those antibodies. So every so often my body will say well i've had enough of that <laughs> that shouldn't be that <laughs> and go right let's let's not have that so your insulin becomes less effective is that, um, is that insulin resistance is that so not term i've heard on medical programs is not i'm i'm not sure it's insulin resistance in the way that a type 2 is insulin resistant because it's probably the same autoimmune response doing that to my insulin as finished off my beta cells originally. Okay. And it knocks out other things as well. So um, I had ovarian failure. Um, my body started attacking my ovaries when I was 33. Okay. I got sterilised. Having had a baby successfully, I got sterilised. I thought, fantastic, I don't ever have to take the pill again. All the crap with the pill i don't have any of that anymore and my periods were absolutely beautiful for about five years and then after that i just it just stopped and, and i went to the doctor that? and said <laughs> said i i think there's something wrong and that he said don't be silly you're too young and sent me away there's a bit of a theme it's, there it's, with uh, you and doctors isn't there well, the funniest thing is my GP said to me, it's probably because you're not looking after yourself properly enough, properly. Because you're a type 1 diabetic and you're a girl, you can't possibly be doing the right things with your diabetes. <laughs> and all the papers say that. If you read the papers, it says it's because diabetics aren't taking care of yourself. But I got a pump in um, 2000, just after my son, 2001, just after my son turned one. And after that, because I could tune, I mean, it's not perfect. People assume it's perfect. It's not. You're always responding. But you've got a four-hour window you're reacting to instead of a 20-hour window with all acting insulin. So I get a dramatic change between the day before my period starts and the day my period starts. And it always used to be a massive hypo. Okay. 
because I'm on nearly five five units more on the day before my period starts and it disappears. And if you're taking long acting injections, my mum used to go, you ought to skip it. I go, like, you know, go hyper instead. That will solve the problem. Yeah, that's not the most ideal response, is it? Yeah, thanks, mum. Thanks for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> however bad a hypo feels, a hyper being high is far worse. So I used to have that once a month. But just I would gear everything around this. <laughs> so kind of the week before my period was due, I'd do nothing. I would just, <laughs> you know, batter down the hatches, hibernate, and just pray that this time. Because one time when my husband first lived with me, um, it was it was so sudden, so bad. This build up, um, this this sudden cliff. It's like a cliff. The the requirements go out of the floor. Um, that I thought he's my brother, and of course he, I'm naked and he's trying to touch me, and I'm going, this is wrong. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so you've got this completely almost hallucinogenic woman <laughs> you're trying yeah. to do, and I'm, so I ran away from him, and of course to run away I ran out into the street. I mean, not into the road per se. Yeah, it's yeah. two o'clock in the morning, so you know you were you were escaping what you thought was I was escaping that situation effectively. And, and and this poor man is having to deal with this. And I can laugh about it now, but you know, when I came round, he said, "Do you know what happened?" And you think, "Oh my god!" I did think at the time, "Thank God we're already married," because you wouldn't have married me. You thought that was gone the cards. You know, marriages fall down for less. <laughs> yeah, that that must have been, I mean, one, a, a kind of horrible situation to, to wake up from um, and kind of realise what had happened. But also you've got, you've got multiple bits going on there. You've got the, the, the fear side of when it's happening. Um, and you've also then ended up in the street, presumably still naked at that point. I, I was definitely partially dressed, apparently. Apparently, I had grabbed a coat. Okay. <laughs> but Not I don't know which coat as it could have been. You know, you... a, li- a little crop veil, a little crop top. Right, okay. <laughs> it could be a long neck. <laughs> yeah. I certainly um, didn't have any shoes on. And then just to become then aware of what's going on, that, that must have been terrifying. It, it's very odd with, because when you're hypo, the body... Again, the body knows what's going on. The body is trying to do something about it. It's just my body's having to deal with a very large amount of insulin compared to yours. So yeah. your body, every 10 minutes, your body is dripping out tiny amounts of insulin. And then you have something to eat and it might give out a bit more. But this is still maybe not even a unit of insulin um, that I deliver yeah. um, by injection. So my body's having to deal with a lot more, but it will do its best and it will give you something. So it can give you enough adrenaline and enough glucagon to kind of get you to the point where you can function. So rather than being this hallucinogenic mess, you're then at the point where you can go, shit, it's bad, Can can you help? And at that point, you look like you're lucid and you're capable, but actually you're possibly still potentially lower than you were 
two minutes ago. It's just your body has finally got it's enough. Oh, it, almost. I've I've been very lucky. Um, some of the some people. I mean, if I had, what people don't appreciate about insulin is insulin will bind to two things in the body. So if there's sugar, it will bind onto a sugar primarily. If there's potassium in the body, it will link on, link on to potassium. Now, potassium is actually what the heart functions with. That's that's the thing that keeps your heart happy and healthy and, and beating well. So when you have a hypo, your body is then going, well, great, I haven't got any sugar. Let's 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 grab onto the potassium. And the, I never had it when I was younger, but certainly after I hit 40, um, my heart would flutter. And the first time it happened, I thought, oh, my God, I'm having it on top of everything else. I'm now having it And you're kind of, you're kind of thinking, because I've, I've had some glucose to, to fix the hyper and I've shut the pump off for a couple of minutes. And you're, you're testing your pulse. You think, because my heart feels like it's doing 19 to the dozen. And you think, yeah. The pulse is actually not too bad. And you think, what the hell is going on? So I'm, I mentioned this to my endocrinologist because after you've been diabetic 30 odd years, they have a different conversation with you because you're, you kind of, they kind of take it red. You've got something, you know, you're fairly something working. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might actually know what you're doing. So I said to him, what is that about? He goes, well, you know how the heart works. I go, no. <laughs> he goes, well, your heart's upset. You know, if you, if you had a heart problem, that would kill you. And and we do, we get some death. Right. And it'll be a hypo in the night that, that your body hasn't, because you're asleep, your body doesn't do the same responses. So you, you just, you die of a heart attack. That must be quite a difficult thing to to know. Um, as well I was as glad some... you know people that that's happened to, or I thought, or... Um, so I've known a few people um, when I was pregnant there were um, 10 of us got together as kind of a m- mothers with diabetes mothers right. and diabetes it's called the mad group <laughs> which is kind of bad <laughs> um, my son is now 22 so this is a while ago <laughs> yeah and this midwife got us together to to share experiences and um, breastfeeding is quite energy intensive and we were definitely told, you know, for the first six weeks, don't drive. It, it's too much to deal with if you're breastfeeding. Don't drive. Um, you know, I'm living in rural Suffolk. I live in a tiny little village, but yeah, let's not drive. <laughs> and, so isolated, to say the yeah, least. Yes, to say the least, especially as I worked full time beforehand and I needed the cash so I couldn't take my turn to leave. Um, yeah, okay. I had complications through the pregnancy for other reasons. Um, but for six weeks, I didn't drive. And it's Christmas Eve. My son was born in October. It's Christmas Eve. And it's a few days after we moved house. And I drove to into town, did Christmas shopping, and then drove to Morrison's to get some shopping and some, you know, the, the heat pre-cooked chicken, the, the yeah. hot chicken. I got some hot chicken and i this apparently this mad woman was trying to get into the car and somebody spotted it and called the police and the police turned up and of course i've got a carry cot in the back of the car from 
when my husband last borrowed the car. Yeah. And they ring up my husband and go, she's being treated, she's fine, but <laughs> did she have a baby with her? <laughs> and, and my husband said, that's what they were worried about. They were worried about the baby. They thought they were ringing me up to say that, you know, for some this mad woman has done something mad with your baby. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that... I, 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 to a certain extent, I can understand where the, the police would have been coming from in that they've seen that and gone, oh, crap. <laughs> what else has gone on here? Yeah. But equally, it sounds like they dismissed you in that situation. Well, no, best will in the world, they turned me on to people who knew what they were doing. Okay. I mean, they hadn't cast me off to the loony bin, which is always a possibility. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I mean, you almost feel like going, please call the ambulance, not the police. Yeah. <laughs> Let the ambulance sort it out. The ambulance people will get me to the point, of course, though, if you if you can hear it and in charge of a vehicle. The police have to come anyway because yeah. you know so there's potentially um a law that's been broken yeah. but thankfully i've never been in that position but and i mean we, we kind of jumped on a little bit there but in in terms of your your kind of well, teenage one, one of the the mothers um in my group she died two days after our last meeting we'd, we'd kind of been dismissed as you're doing great your, your children now old enough it's now up to you <laughs> and she died in a car accident she dropped her children off her five children her new baby and one the her husband her partner i don't know if they were married but her the, the father of the child um wanted us to be banned from driving for three months just to stop that happening to anyone else and you kind of think well yeah and and i had my hypo which was almost certainly because i was breastfeeding and it caught me out and I, because i hadn't been driving i didn't have any data um i mean i was <laughs> i was so much more careful after that and i only breastfed for another three weeks after that i didn't yeah. drive while I was breastfeeding because I just thought actually I don't know what's going on here but I made that decision um, and I was very very careful so I got into the habit of testing half an hour before I drove and an hour and just before you get behind the wheel so you're doing two tests making sure there's no big differential this was yeah. before sensors the, the, the sensors we all take for granted now um, they didn't exist. I got my first sensor in 2008. It was that late, was it? Yeah. And That's... I did jump at it, you know, because, you know, <laughs> things like that kind of put yeah. things in perspective and you go, yes, yes, I'll have some of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first ones were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to do full um, blood tests a day and they have to be and it's calibration. So the sensor needed calibration. So in the middle of the night, you have to wake up, do a blood test, get it recorded accurately, and then you can go back to sleep. <laughs> Which is okay. You don't mind doing that. 
if the sodden thing works. But I'm, I'm once I once I got the instant pump and everything, I saved up money and I, I learned to ride ride a motorcycle. Okay. Um, the pump was self-funded. When I got funding for the pump, I had the free money to to buy a motorcycle, and it's similar amounts of money actually. My my first pump was more expensive than my first motorcycle. <laughs> And I funded that. I used to pay for that. <laughs> I mean, how, how did you even afford? I, mean, I suppose you didn't really, but it's like anything Alpha related. You you just you just do it. But I mean, how, how did you yeah. manage that? I was told I was too healthy to be on pump. And there were, there were two reasons for that. One, it was to get funding. If you were ill, yes, you should have a pump. If, if you're not coping any other way, you should have a pump. But the second one was a clinician in, they, they call it the Sheffield experiment, gave out insulin pumps to all his diabetic type 1 cohort and said, there you go, go have fun. <laughs> and two people died. So, Presumably because they weren't accurate enough, I'm guessing. Um, they, they weren't trained on them. They really were not given a clue on what they should be doing. Sounds like a really good physician, that one. Yep, so that was a good decision. But as a result, in the UK, it meant they weren't really keen on giving pumps to people who are healthy because it was too big a risk. The pump could kill you. And if you weren't, if you were healthy to begin with, that's, you know, that's a hell of a cost. So because I was doing all right, and I said about the hypos when I was um, from, you know, my monthly hypo. And she looked at me and she said, you never told us that. And I said, well, you never asked. You looked at my results. You can see it in my results. You are looking at my results and not seeing it. That's not my fault. But regular clockwork on the last Friday of the month, <laughs> you could see this passive hypo. About two o'clock in the morning. You could almost set a clock by it. And when the clocks changed, it moved. <laughs> during you, the summer, it's two o'clock, and during the winter, it's three o'clock. <laughs> you've got to ask. I mean, how did they miss that? Presumably, because oh, they weren't looking at it. Yeah, clinicians are geared up around the idea of men need to be supported, and and because men have jobs, they are economically more viable. And this this is. This is the main driver. You look after the men, the women, it's not as important. They will just cope, or if they don't cope, it's not a huge loss, is it? A ridiculous mindset to have. It was the 1970s and 80s. <laughs> and by the time I got my pump, it, it got to the 2000s. The number, of type ones, the number of type ones I met... Um, who had babies and said, I can't do everything. I can't look after this and look after kids and have a full-time career. So you give one of them up. And the easiest one to give up is the career. Yeah. So I went back to work after for, we moved house. I mean, <laughs> the loony thing we did, we moved house when I, when I, was, <laughs> when I had an eight-week-old baby. So... <laughs> Which is why I didn't know where everything was. And <laughs> so 
I got back to work in um, April and made it work. You have to make it work. You're certainly at the point. The, the year's savings has all gone to the new house. You have to make it work. And I got back and I'd, I'd had, because of complications, I'd had um, quite a bit of time off. And my manager said to me, you know, it's good to see you back in the office. I said, fantastic. He said, we weren't really expecting you to do work the day you came back. And I gave him a look, <laughs> you know, because I'd asked for the time to, to restabilise. I needed to restabilise. And I said, well, but you're paying me. Of course I'm going to be doing work. <laughs> and Do you think you would have said that to, uh, to, to a man? man no, no, of course not. The other thing I got was I'd been thinking about it really hard and I thought, actually, I've been in the company three, nearly four years. I'm interested in promotion. Mm. And he said, well, let's see how you get on first. And I just looked at him. I thought, I've got no fucking hope for it. <laughs> No, best well in the world. I had I had a joint degree in mathematics and computer science. Yeah. I'd done postgraduate research as an undergraduate because I had programming skills and I had mathematical skills. And in my first week of that, I spotted what was wrong with somebody's algorithm and it was a transposition error. And I spotted it because the algorithm didn't fit with the premise. And you're going to somebody who's a professor in mathematics and going, I'm really sorry, I think you've got an error here. I think you transposed this wrong. Yeah. It was a sign. A sign should have been negative and it was, um, should have been positive and it was a negative. Going, I think, I think in your Bernoulli best fit equation, you've, you've got a fault here. And I said, and I've tracked this through the code and the code's got the same fault. And I, I said, I've changed it and, and ran the simulation again. It was giving best results. And he looked at me. And of course, I'm, I did my degree three years late because while well, I was a teenager, there was all kinds of shit going on with my blood sugar levels because you've got puberty, you've got everything going on. So I'd, I'd gone late. So I wasn't really an 18 year old with, with a couple of A levels. I'd, I'd been offered second year entry at Aston and Birmingham for electronic engineering because that's what I did for my apprenticeship. I'd okay. changed subjects because I really wasn't I did not enjoy electronic engineering the only thing I liked was aerial theory <laughs> theory. that's because it was highly mathematical <laughs> so and I, I I used to do really well in maths tests so I, I had had a little bit of training in programming but I'd been mucking about computers since I was eight yeah okay so that's that's what I wanted to do. And when I got to my first year um, a tutorial session with the other two people doing joint, um, with somebody doing joint maths and somebody doing computer science and management studies, and we were all female. All the people doing joint were female, so we had 100% female. Yeah, we should <laughs> so be rare. Careful on on my STEM course. <laughs> Um, what would you like to do with, with your degree when you finish? I said, well, I'm really interested in medical applications, you know, analysing, predicting um, people's insulin requirements as, as, you know, fascinating to me. But I also saw um, similar models could be used for people with asthma, people with hay fever. 
which probably don't sound quite as life critical as type one diabetes, but it's asthma can be pretty bad. Yeah, asthma can be terrifying. Um, but I thought if you could do if you do some more common things like hay fever, you've got funding for the more complicated yeah. and life impacting things. So I over the past 30 years I've been building this mathematical model that will learn from people how they live, what works for them, what impacts their requirements. Um, so I've written a little AI that does that. It's not bad. Very good. Yeah. And do you do you use that in, in your own care? Does that So my old pump, my old beautiful pump, which I miss like bad. <laughs> You could program from the computer, and it, so it's really easy to to give it what you are today and and the data, and it would come up with what you are to, what you need tomorrow. So you could program the pump. That was fantastic. Now my current pump is stupid. It's closed loop one, but it I'm actually running it on closed loop now, but it it takes a lot of training let's put it mildly and of course in my cycle it doesn't always get the cycle understanding right yeah, yeah. you have to give it two days on the next basal rate requirement to get used to what it's doing to be have any hope of it being accurate so that's a bit of fun and games i mean it did do something spectacular once <laughs> thankfully i was at home but um yeah i'm i'm quite careful with it at, at what age did you have to take all this under your own control then? So so I talked about my dad's injection technique because <laughs> my dad's nervousness, I thought, I'm going to have to do this for him. He's nearly okay. <laughs> you know, you get to a certain age and you said, look, I'm going to need some help, but I will do it. If I get the, it in, can you, <laughs> can you help me? Because physically, physically as a six-year-old, I could not hold the syringe because it's so heavy. And I, my dad must have said, do you know what she lost me? <laughs> cheeky, cheeky cow. <laughs> she wanted to do it. And my mum sat and looked at the problem. And my mum bought me a packet of plastic syringes. Yeah. And they were, I mean, plastic syringes were in, so I was six. So that was um, 1979, 1980. They were about a fiver a, a a pack of ten, horrendously expensive. Yeah. And at the time, you still had to do all the sums. So I had thirty and sixty strength insulins, and you had to work out your number of units and then convert that back to how much insulin that would be, given it was thirty strength and sixty strength. In nineteen eighty one, and I know many type ones moan about this, but human insulin came along and along with human insulin came u100 100 insulin units per millimole which meant you could have syringes marked with insulin units so instead of having this this kind of maybe seven mil by is that three inches so it's about that big it's quite a chunky syringe. You've got this tiny little light syringe, and you can suddenly just read <laughs> how far down the plunger goes. And if you took your hand off the plunger, it stayed where you left it. Yeah. This is like magic. 
Game changer in many senses. Game changer. I could do this without my dad having to be involved. Yeah. <laughs> so Saturdays, I was a free bird, and it got to Monday, and I'd done the mum. Mum would kind of watch me. It got to Monday, and I said, "Well, okay, I'm ready." She goes, "Well, you, you okay? Well, you do it." <laughs> so that that was kind of. So I'd get my dose off my parents, and I would give it. And by the time I was eight, I think either mum or dad or both of them had decided that actually I needed to be part of the decision process. So by the time I left home at 18, I was kind of self-sufficient, kind of. And I I guess with that, you kind of have to be if, if you want to leave home. If you want to drive a car, if you want to stay away for an evening, if you want to do anything. Um, when I was 13, I'd, I'd gone to camp and I was still on two injections a day at that point and people had pens. And I, although they, they said, don't carb count, people had pens and everybody with a pen was the same as me, you carb count. <laughs> so they were giving different doses at lunchtime. So you have one long acting injection and then... Um, have what you need during the day, which is kind of how the pump works. The pump works at you have a basal rate which tricks drips along under the current, and then you have boluses for meal meals, and they they call it MDI these days, multiple daily injections. But pen therapy is pretty much that idea. Yeah, okay. And if you're lucky, that works really well. Did that work for you then at all? Not with my cycle because of my cycle, the long acting was the the failing bit. And how much, how much kind of variance is there in type one, and its its impact on on different people? So I do know people. My mum's had patients with their insulin. They have the same thing for breakfast and the same thing for lunch and the same thing for tea because they were given a diet sheet twenty five years ago that said what they should have. Yeah, <laughs> and they never vary their insulin. <laughs> And they, they, they do the same things every day, and it works for them. Um, yeah, I don't want to live like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so do you, do you then have to calculate that. everything? So if you have a different meal, would you then have to recalculate your insulin? So I do this slide pack um, to talk to people about type 1 diabetes. And one of them I've got – so I, I – in 2018, somebody published the 42 factors that impact what insulin you need. <laughs> and nice short list, then. 42 things. And I went through it, I thought, it's not 42. And I, I, they group into kind of three things. What you do, so exercise, um, the insulin you give, the decisions you make the stress you're feeling, the, the external impacts, what you eat, of course, and um, that, that stress, that what you do and the insulin take, those are the things that kind of mix together and they are all different. Now, external impacts can be the weather. So I'm a little unusual. Most of the guys I meet um, need much less insulin during the summer. Um, I tend to need more during the summer because I hate the heat and I'm quite stressed during the heat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have hay fever. So during the summer, I tend to take typically three or four units more 
um, over a day for my basal requirements than I do in the winter. And that's just something simple. <laughs> something as simple as the weather. I mean, I, I can understand why you have become so good at maths, for one, because that essentially has been ingrained within you since, like, six by the sign of it. It's, it's dynamics. It's all about um, fluid dynamics, how things work, what impacts. Yeah. This, the rate of change. So I dealt with calculus in, in my teens. I had a hypo when I was seven. Um, I'd come back from school and I I had done an unexpected sports day. I'd done a blood test, new blood test, new toy. So I'd done a blood test on seven and less than half an hour later I was three. And that's just because of that change. And that dip, I didn't actually feel it drop. But as soon as I hit three, I knew I was hypo. So I couldn't prevent the hypo, but I knew as hypo I could then deal with it. And because of that drop, that drop is actually such a shock that your body actually kicks in faster. So it's it or it does in my case. I don't know what other people like. So understanding that kind of calculus, you know, the rate of change. <laughs> so somebody somebody was describing calculus to me when I was six. Um, 15 or 16 I was thinking yeah I know that I (laughs) I can appreciate that I've been there I've lived that yeah I'm very well versed in that (laughs) so you can you can see the dynamics and that dynamic behavior I I wrote a book about it um because I I ended up coaching people online and I got my 600th thank you and I thought I really should write a book (laughs) because It's all similar things people are encountering, you know. It often is. So I've put down what I knew. And it doesn't say you sh- if you weigh this much, you should have this, and you're doing these activities, you should have this incident. It teaches people how to learn from their data. Yeah. Because that's actually the difficult bit. And societally, have you seen much of a change in, in how people view and I'm going to say diabetes here purposefully um, because I suspect that there's a bit of frustration around type 1 and type 2 being effectively lumped into the same, the same I, category. I feel quite lucky that I have type 1 because it's okay. not seen as my fault. Yeah. Can you imagine being horrendously ill and, and some type 2s because they don't know what's wrong with them? They know they're ill, but they don't know what it is. They go to the doctor. The doctor doesn't test them. So they end up with complications. Mm. And society's telling them, well, it's because you're lazy. It's because you haven't made the effort. So I feel quite lucky in that way. I know if I put on too much weight, people think I'm a bad diabetic because I'm not following a diet. Um, that that definitely, definitely happens. Um, I remember, as we both worked for the same company, the chief medical officer in 2011 sending out a, a, an email saying, don't get diabetes through laziness, get out to the gym. I wrote to him. 
I bet you did, you and just, rightly so. You just called me lazy. You just said I'm an instant because I'm lazy. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> oh, I did put it in those terms. Oh, yeah, you just said I'm late. Do you know how fucking hard I work? Well, to be <laughs> alive, you know, the basics of keeping alive, let alone giving well, myself. If future. anyone's lazy, it was it was the chief medical officer by using that wording and yes. not thinking through the impact of saying something like that. I mean, why would you ever think that's a good a good slogan is probably what was in, in the mindset. But yes, it, it I, was. It was, you know, don't be a couch potato. But I mean, I feel quite, so I do feel quite lucky. But yeah, you get things like that. And it took, I I probably wasn't the only one, but you you whinge at the Radio 4 and the BBC News site. You've just said diabetics. Don't, please don't do that. (laughs) You know, there's at least five conditions. Type 1 and type 2 is nowhere near what's happening because you've got, I always think mine should be called autoimmune acquired diabetes. Yeah. So we've had whatever whatever your impact, whatever's triggered your type 1, the, the destruction of beta cells, that's what's happened. It's an autoimmune response. Insulin resistance we've already talked about. So majority of type 1s would be um, AAD or immunity, autoimmunity required diabetes, they'd be insulin resistance. There's a whole set of people with genetic faults that make them so insulin resistant they need insulin. Neonates are often um, diagnosed within the first six months of life. And if you get them on the right gene therapy, they no longer need insulin. It's not that they were type 1 and cured, they have a completely different thing. Um, I never know whether you'd class um, people as um, just forgotten the word for it. Um, CF, cystic fibrosis. So a lot of people with cystic fibrosis end up with um, beta cell malfunctions. Right, Um, okay. And I think that they're either that's not quite an autoimmune disease it's more genetic factors so whether they're genetic factors or aad i don't know and the last one and genetic factors would probably encompass moody as well so maturity onset um diabetes yeah in the young um that'd be a genetic factor and then you've got physical injury so people who get cancer and have to have their pancreas removed or irradiated people get shot apparently in america people get shot and the pancreas can be impacted (laughs) you read papers and you think seriously you're doing what people (laughs) you know know, forget anything else (laughs) there's 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 lots to be said about some of the stuff that goes on over the pond. So I I, I do wonder about some of them. Um, but yeah, I think that covers and gestational diabetes, of course, which can often um, effectively disappear once the baby's been delivered. Yeah. Although it does make you statistically, you're more, more at risk of insulin resistance later on in life, and that can accelerate quite quickly. Yeah. My wife had um, 
well, they said at the very, very end of pregnancy that she had gestational diabetes amongst uh, a few other things, so coleostasis, um, where you um, your liver is not functioning properly and you're not binding onto the bile in your in your bloodstream, so you get extremely itchy. Effectively, is the the symptom um, and can be really quite severe. Um, so it, you can see it in liver failure quite often. But fortunately, that was relieved then after birth. It just kind of goes away, like gestational diabetes. But they don't tell you about the the kind of potential impacts later on. And actually through the pregnancy, wife was very healthy. There was, apart from those two things, there was no warning signs. There was no, no issues. She'd not, to use the stereotype, she'd not suddenly piled on a load of weight, um, uh, which I always find it odd because actually if you, if you look at the symptom checkers and stuff, it's actually if you lose weight is a sign of, of these types of um, uh, illnesses. So, yeah, there was no no kind of warning signs, but also they didn't talk about the long-term impacts, which is a bit of a gap. So it's very funny. Um, before blood testing, I mean, pregnancy was a bit of a lottery. So people did successfully carry. Um, some people didn't. Yeah. And the ovarian failure was quite common in people who were diagnosed as children young children so before the age of six ovarian failure before the age of 50 is actually quite common um which you kind of think if somebody said that to me i'd have known what i was looking for and i could have done something about it and i i made the decision to have a child before 30 which you know having done a joint degree you're not expected to then you know couple of years into your working life go well, I'm having a baby now yeah um if I hadn't done it then I you know I potentially wouldn't have had the chance yeah and that that's that's kind of that's kind of shocking you know if somebody said I I there would have been decisions I'd have made differently potentially and do you do you think that that's more of a consideration for people that are being diagnosed now than it perhaps was when you were coming through god bless the internet yeah <laughs> we talk about it the I, I had trouble with the gp so the only reason i knew i'd gone through the menopause is i spoke to a consultant obstetrician obstetrician i can't get the word out over in america at 10 o'clock in the evening gmt <laughs> <laughs> who I described in my symptoms, he said, yeah, you, you you need to get tested. He said, if you were in the States, I'd say, drop me a vial of blood, you know, get, get me a sample and I'll do it for you. It's mad or maddening, really, that you had to speak to somebody over in America just to get that understanding. Is that because... America were further forward in the understanding or or is that just is a lucky luck of the draw in the in, in the UK of who understands what? I don't think America's ever forgiven the Canadians for extracting insulin first. <laughs> so, so when when insulin happened in, in Canada and they started publishing and there's a really famous photograph of a um, American senator's daughter and the picture of her as a 14 year old 
and she was 14 at the time she'd been diagnosed at 11 i mean she should have been dead she was skeletal and still walking wow. and because she was put on starvation diet that's what you did she was allowed to eat 384 calories a day that was the treatment and after doing that for three years as an 11 year old she didn't have much time left and coma was the next step that's what happens because people tell me oh you if you if you ate less you could give up insulin and you go, no no it doesn't work like that no, if you, i wouldn't if, eat for that or if you i mean <laughs> just to function you you i mean obviously it varies in varies in person but around the ballpark of 1500 to 2000 calories just function and there, that is a very big spectrum like depending on your size and you know, all these different things i'm five foot six well, yeah five foot seven if, if if i stand up right and it's early in the morning i'm five foot seven <laughs> i am 24 my bmi is 24 so i'm a little on the heavy side if i go down to bmi of 23 you can see my ribs so there's really not much to me. I'm, I'm not dense, but there's, there's, I'm quite solid. Um, I can't get below a size 12. It doesn't matter how much I, I starve myself. My bones are just that big. Um, but I don't like how that looks. I've, I've been skeletal. That, to me, isn't attractive. Yeah. I don't like men who are too skinny. You know, well, it is. <laughs> It's it's one of the things, isn't it, that your your kind of conditioning, uh, so kind of how you've been brought up, the the things that you've seen as a child, and as you've kind of grown up, and your own experiences, that then informs what you see um, as as a in this case an attractiveness or not to to a, a physique. Um, it's healthy. I like healthy. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I see somebody who isn't healthy. I just want to put an arm around them and say, "Are you okay? Do you need some help?" Yeah, I I find the whole of that kind of conversation around the physical look of somebody. Because um, I mean, I've known people that have been, yeah, on the outside look very healthy, very. You know, they look like they they train a lot, they go to the gym a lot, but they're not actually. So when they've been to the doctors and, and had to have bloods done for a variety of reasons, they've suddenly found out that they've got really high cholesterol um, or a mixture of other things. Because whilst they look physically good, um, and usually that's men looking very strong and and you know like look like they go to the gym probably too much. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your body and your your condition um, is is healthy. Likewise, um, you can be a bit bigger and you can be healthier than than you are when you're thinner. Sort of like you were detailing there, the, the case of one point on the BMI scale and your physical appearance and your own feeling of health is entirely different. Um, it- it's also I need a certain amount of stores. So when I get down to twenty-two BMI, I'm not only I mean some people call it attractive, but I don't deal with hypos as well. Right. 
um, because I don't have the, the, the reserves to pull back on. So there's a whole lot about where I'm happy. I Look-wise, I'm, I'm carrying a little bit more fat than I should be at the moment, so I'm trying to get healthy for that. But I don't want to be a size smaller at the moment, I don't think. Has that been something that you've you've kind of always been conscious of, that balance of maintaining a healthy body for your diabetes so in in that set in that sense um having enough stores to to deal with the, the hypos whereas it's everything it's not, it can be a bit different it's not just hypos it's hypos as well so if you you need to have a little bit spare for want of a better word so that if something goes catastrophic you're not burning tissue you know yeah valuable tissue um so i this sounds very altruistic i i had a really bad accident on a push bike not to do with the diabetes i fluffed a corner and went over handlebars and fractured my face in five different places my face was completely caved in i was knocked unconscious and um because I had my Fitbit running, <laughs> you could you could see I'd gone from kind of thirty miles an hour to nothing, and then up to seventy because the ambulance had come <laughs> and taken yeah, away. Okay. Anyway, blues and twos, um, and that that was quite funny because you're at the point where you can't eat. You physically to to, I had no break underneath my chin. So my neck down, my neck down was fine. All the breaks were above my chin, um, which is what they were worried about. I came round in the CT scanner and they said, don't move a muscle. So I didn't move a muscle because I didn't break my neck. <laughs> the funniest thing about that is my face was skinned. I, I, I was in a really bad way. I was quite quite poorly with that. Um, and they never operate on the day. This thing where you've got compression syndrome or anything, they take you in, into emergency surgery to fix a broken bone. That never happens on the day because there's too much bloody swelling. They like you to rest five days. So they wait five days before they stitch anything back together. And on the fourth day, I was almost at the point where I could cope with the pain. And I, I got my phone i thought let's have a look what's it look like <laughs> and you know the blood just dried off and flaked off so you're looking at yourself and you think oh, fuck I, you know i don't look like me yeah and i put the phone down i just sat and giggled which was incredibly painful <laughs> so I, I kind of laughed out loud and then went ow <laughs> so of course my husband came around and he said are you all right i go yeah it's fine but i just thought it doesn't matter what I look like isn't important I'm, I'm in one piece my husband's here my my son had had an operation four um four days earlier you know I'm in one piece I'm alive whatever happens it doesn't matter and that was a bit of an eye-opener because I was 40 well it's 2017 so I was um 44 at the time and I thought, 
you th- you're focusing on the wrong thing. What you look like doesn't matter. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And that was a bit of an eye opener. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. How do you feel? And I saw, um, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but the, the lady who was attacked by her boyfriend was scarred and lost the vision of her eyes. Yeah, I, I, I know who you mean, but can never remember, can never recall her name. I mean, on, on the day you wake up in the CT scanner and have, checking if you're going to be paralysed, and they go, we really have to tell you, you haven't broken anything in, in your neck or back. And you go, yay. <laughs> you go, can I move now? <laughs> go, yeah. <laughs> and of course you realise you, you know, nothing's moving very quickly. And he he turns around and looks at the monitor and and your face is kind of in bits, you know. (laughs) You kind of see your skull is kind of caved in. And you go, right, okay, what are we doing about this? And he said, you've you've cracked your occipital. What we're going to have to do, you're going to have to see an ophthalmic surgeon, check if things are right with your eyes. And I'm thinking, it's fucking difficult, isn't it? I've I've spent all this time avoiding ophthalmic surgeons. I end up going and seeing them as an emergency. So you go, kind of, you're kind of waiting in the waiting room, and you, you, your husband's there, and you don't look quite so bad on the day it happens after they clean you up. And the ophthalmic surgeon is looking at your eyes, and he's looking at one eye, and he's looking at the second one. He goes, "Are you sure you're di- You know, how long have you been diabetic?" I say, "40 odd years." And he goes, "Are you sure?" Yes, yes, I'm pretty damn sure. Because yeah. your eyes are fantastic. <laughs> and you're sitting there thinking, well, that, that's comforting. Are they still working? <laughs> Is everything where we should be? <laughs> you're supposed to be doing a job. Concentrate. Yeah, getting distracted. Is <laughs> <laughs> is that quite a common thing that with type one because uh, you can see it there, there's evidence all over our bodies if you look for it um, yeah okay by the time you get to 40 years old there's usually quite significant damage for want of a better term yeah and is that is that a preventable damage with the right treatment or is that just something that's going to happen it's it's a little bit of luck so even if i do everything perfectly i've got a 13 percent chance of waking up tomorrow blind and it can be that dramatic um just because i'm at that stage of my life where it's been a long time and you know my body is aging quicker it's it's been through a lot um i'm very lucky it doesn't happen to show in my eyes at the moment and it still doesn't show that much i have finally won the argument with the um screening people that they will not put drops in my eyes so i can't see (laughs) <laughs> that that took seven years of saying I really don't want the drops every single time they finally put in the nose because <laughs> it's such a fag you turn up on a motorbike because you usually say do you mind if you don't and they usually go yes it's, it's okay because I happen to have quite big eyes and I started then going, well, in America, they only screen you, if, if your HB1C is it's mine, they only screen you every two years rather than every year. And they go, we're not doing that here. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. So America's quite interesting because everybody goes to the care so much better. 
but they have really studied about what they need to do. So because I'm as healthy as I am, yes, I get an annual appointment. They would like to see me every three months and I go, just because of how long I've been diabetic, and I go, but there's no evidence that I'm not doing anything differently to last time and last time you said it could be a year. <laughs> so you're having the same conversation each time. Um, and very funny, they'll make the appointment for six months because <laughs> the doctor goes, we'll have you back in six months, and then they'll move it out to nine months and then they'll move it out to a year. So there is some checks and balances do go on, but they're, they're quite keen. But, yeah. And presumably once that damage is done, it's it's irreversible damage. So some things do recover. If you can get the damage to the kidneys early enough, the, ki- the kidneys are, are like the liver, if you, a bit like an alcoholic, if you manage to get them early enough before the damage is really set in, they will recover. They take five years to recover, so you have to be absolutely on the button for five years to give them a hope. Yeah. And obviously once you've got that cascade so if if you don't manage to do that quickly enough the damage cascades so it's it's a really tricky when people say i'm in first stage renal uh, you know that they, they say i've got damage to my kidneys great let's you need to go back to your endocrinologist and you need to say what what i'm doing is not working help me to get where i need to be and that conversation needs to be a two-way thing because if you're in the situation I was and you'd built antibodies to your insulin, you need a different insulin. You may need a different delivery system. You may need to change how you do your long-acting shots so they actually coincide within your body needs the most insulin. So there's a lot you can do. But if you are on the wrong treatment, you are fighting a losing battle. And it really upsets me when type ones say I can't get it working and they won't give me any options if they're not giving you an option you need a different endocrinologist yeah and that's hard work that's much harder work than going and finding another GP because there aren't many specialized well skill set it's it's not something that you get what I would I would stab that there's probably a thousand in the UK, I guess. Um, try a bit lower. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's not a very popular. It's a very difficult discipline. One of the things I I did when I had my STEM license was I talked to children about you know thinking about careers that help support endocrinology, so pharma pharmacology, um, phlebologists. DSNs, diabetic specialist nurses, endocrinologists, and, and the whole spectrum. And it, it's very funny in the UK. We are, it's not considered interesting. Well, I think actually you're looking at how the body functions. You're looking at the motor system for the body. The endocrine system is kind of what makes everything tick. It's what switches on, well, the thyroid gland, the um pancreas they're kind of what switches on everything else they enable everything else to work yeah. and and i had a, a colleague at work i 
said I was type 1 and he, he went to me, oh, you're running part of your endocrine system then. And I just beamed at him because I'd never heard it put that way, but that's exactly what a type 1 diabetic does. We get control in a way that somebody who's got a thyroid problem or any of the other um, issues that can happen with the endocrine system, that is what I'm doing. And it happens to be quite an essential one. Yeah. And we're very lucky in the UK that we get kind of to play with it if we want to. Because you can go you can go to your JP and go, it's not working for me, can we look at something else? And your GP will, will look at you with dismay and horror. <laughs> but they will actually listen and you've got results. You've got the, the results that show it's not working. So there's a whole conversation you can have. And that's kind of what my book was about. It's about empowering people to have those conversations. And how do you think that no, let me rephrase that. So when I go to a, a GP with, with, and talk about my condition, I'm going in knowing more than the GP does, frankly. Um, and that's not because the GPs aren't trained. It's just that it's it's not a massively common... Um, I mean, the overall stat is about 1 in one in 1,500-ish, depending on, on what you've got. And then my type is um, a little bit rarer than, than that. Um, just because just why not? So when I go in, I am telling them what needs to happen because I have had to know it and that's just just my life. Is it similar for you or do they have more of a, an understanding of what, what it is and, and what it does? It's very funny because I always think the really good GPs look at how long I've been alive and they go, okay, <laughs> you know what you're doing. Um, of course, when you've only been type one, but well, when you go in as an 18 year old girl saying, I want to do this, they look at you as if you've got screw loose. <laughs> so I've got the badge to say, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And I think it's really, I hope it's better, yeah. but I suspect, I, I remember putting together the business case for me having the insulin pen because they're quite expensive as a device and the insulin is slightly more expensive, the cartridges. And I put together it as a business case and I went to my endocrinologist and I said, I want to do this. And um, you're putting it together a business case for your health at 13. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's probably the biggest, well, it's one of the biggest differences between mine, which is very much a physical condition in that it's you know i was born with deformities so stuff just is not the way another person's would be um it, whereas uh, as obviously yours is is your is your uh, endocrine system as you say and i can kind of go in and physically show what's kind of going on and that actually you know now being late 30s they kind of know that walking on my ankles for that amount of time is going to have done more damage because it does anyway. But then you magnify that by having all the bones that are all out of place and all sorts of stuff going on in, inside there. And they, they, they know that certain things will be good for you. Whereas 
yours is more of a specialised area, particularly with that treatment side of things. As you say, there's only... Well, you didn't see it. So how many endo- endochronologists are there in the UK, roughly? I don't think it's as many as a 1,000. There are um, 25 specialist centres. Okay. If we say each one of those has got six. Yeah. So not a lot. So not a lot. And a GP's then not going to be anywhere near the the kind of level of understanding. Because then that's the I, same I, I don't mind the GPs who appreciate that. Yeah. I had love when I was first diagnosed, the GP who saw me was actually a locum. My my um my GP was off with cancer when I was first diagnosed. So he saw me, um he actually asked to see me to make sure I had everything I needed and have a chat with my mum because he knew my mum professionally. And he said, how are you getting on? And she goes, bit of a shock. <laughs> it's not like the textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so by this stage, you know, my mum had enough nurse to realise it wasn't, and there's no guidance. There's no guidance for living with it. It's all about treating it from a clinician's point of view, not for being out in the wild. And she said about the the locum, and she said, "Yeah, see, I don't assume I know anything." <laughs> Doctor Smith said, "I don't assume I know anything," so I'd have sent you off to the hospital just to see what's going on. Which, to be honest, <laughs> I, I would actually, much rather. That's what I want from a GP. I don't want a GP goes. I know everything. The the person who replaced him. Um, believed in holistic medicine and he didn't believe I needed as much testing equipment as I did so because that was expensive <laughs> so I made GPs pretty damn soon after that <laughs> yeah yeah but and, um, I got an abscess on my leg from injecting a toilet at work um, my part-time job was on a Saturday and that poor man Dr Campbell tried to drain my leg and um, he couldn't, so he sent me off to hospital in an ambulance. I met my mum there because my mum had dropped me off <laughs> in the morning at the GPs because the antibiotics weren't working. So, uh, you know, you wake up, it very occasionally with an injection, you get a small lump afterwards and it goes away after a couple of days. Mm. The next day, the lump had actually got bigger rather than smaller. And I said it in passing to my mum, and my mum took me up to the, the, the emergency GP and got me some antibiotics. And I thought, never mind, you know, I'm sure I'm sure she's overreacting. <laughs> and I went to bed, and I, I used to sleep curled up in a ball, and I woke up the next morning, I couldn't straighten my leg. The lump on my leg had kind of was pushing down on things. I couldn't straighten my leg without really physically, as an effort, straight, straighten my leg. And I thought, well, that's all right. I'm on the antibiotics. I'm now, you know, the antibiotics are now going to do their job. <laughs> I got faith healing, if nothing else. <laughs> and by the Wednesday, I wake up in the morning and the lump hadn't got any bigger, but it now turned a really interesting green colour. <laughs> so I went up. I went that's not colour you want your, your, uh, your skin to be going. <laughs> um, it, well, it was a very solid green lump, not like a bruised green. It was a, you know, properly green so I said to my mum I really need to be dropped off at, at 
so I packed my insulin because <laughs> I thought I'm not going to hospital without my insulin. I got my insulin testing kit and I got my school bag because I thought as soon as I've just seen the doctor I can pop off to college so I have a bus pass to go to college. I went to college and um, said to mum, drop me off at, at my doctor's and he looked at my leg and said that needs draining so he tried to drain it and it because of where it was sitting on the nerve he couldn't get the um anesthetic to the right place so i then go off to hospital and it was i have to say it was a bit sudden quicker than when i was diagnosed <laughs> you know they did actually do the operation on the night <laughs> it sounds like that was a fairly crucial operation. yeah well, I'm, I'd gone to bed, gone to sleep for the operation. I, I came round and my leg had been hurting really badly with this lump sitting on the nerve. And I came round I couldn't feel my leg at all. And I remember thinking, oh, bugger, they've cut my leg off. Where the hell am I going to inject now? <laughs> yeah, that's a whole sight. <laughs> that's going to make things really awkward. <laughs> and then I went back to sleep again. Oh. Not that you'd, you know, potentially lost your leg and and, yeah, and that could be a bad that, thing. That, that, yeah. that's, that, that's annoying, but... <laughs> but I must say, because it, it's, it's, not, it's not an uncommon thing for a, for a diabetics to, to no, lose, lose limbs. limbs. I was so high on the drugs. <laughs> that was the thought. The thought wasn't, damn, I've lost my leg. It was, <gasps> that's annoying. <laughs> I mean, it, it's fascinating that all the different kind of dynamics you've had as you've as you've gone through almost forty five years, isn't it now? So what yeah. was it the twelfth of December that yeah. was your forty fifth? And it's diversity, isn't it? Diversity. It wasn't a term I'd seen until it was on, done online. It's my it's it's my second diversity. I sat and look at this and I think, what do you mean? That's that's your diagnosis day. Because <laughs> I'd gone away to my first camp and people were talking about their diagnosis day and I was four and I knew it was in December because it was Christmas time. Yeah. So decorations up. Even in the hospital, there were a few things. So I went home. I said, Mum, when was the diagnosis? And she said, the 12th. <laughs> and it, was, it was a very definitive day. And I sort of remembered the, the GP's appointment and I kind of... And I kind of thought it's Monday because we had Sunday lunch and I wasn't, I was hungry. I remember being hungry. I remember going to the hospital. So you kind of think, well, the 12th must have been a Monday. I was about 13 at this time. So I thought it must be a Monday. And of course, once you've got um, calendars online, you can actually think, and it was actually a Monday. And I don't know, my mum didn't take me to hospital on Sunday. I think, I think she thought, if we go in, it, we won't get good service or something. Oh, it's not, it's not an emergency. We've caught this early enough. Because yeah. mum, I was talking to my mum about it a couple of weeks ago, and she said, because there's no urgency about any of it. They weren't, they, there was no panic. And I didn't think there was any panic because you, you were walking and talking and, you know, you weren't, you know, the big symptoms, you weren't wet in bed. Well, it was four. I, I knew wet in bed was bad because mum mum and dad used to have to clean my brother's bed. So I knew wet in the bed was bad. So yeah. I'd get up and I'd go to the toilet. And we had the long string. And if I 
let on my tippy toes, I could pull the cable down the blue bathroom, I could sit on the toilet and I could do everything. So I didn't need to make my mum up, so I dealt with everything. And I just thought, you know, you get up during the middle of the night if you need the loo, and that's what happens. So there was never any urgency. And I kind of feel that's kind of been the attitude. I don't know if it's because I'm laid back or because I'm healthy looking. (laughs) Or all of the above. Like like it's urgent. But yeah, people, people are very funny about it. Doctor, you know, Doctors go, really? Are you you really been diabetic that long? Because they look at the notes and I get my script. And I have my script for my HRT now. I get that annually. So there's enough time if there's a shortage. There's been a few times in the HRT. They stop my... There'd be such fuss if they stop making a type of insulin. You know, you get five years notice and they're stopping insulin. Um, HRT, they switch off like that. Um, so it's never, there's any urgency. It's just what happens. (laughs) Which I suppose in some ways is, is, is a kind of calming thing. So you're not constantly panicked about this emergency, that emergency. So I guess your stress levels are probably lower than they might otherwise be. I, the stress... The stress is something else. Um, I often get told by people, you don't stress about anything. They should see me at three o'clock in the morning and my blood sugar won't come down from 12, no matter how much insulin I'm given. I'll tell you what, I'm pretty stressed then. <laughs> or when you're hypo and nothing's working, nothing's bringing you up. You know, um, I think over the past decade it takes another decade for all the guys out there who are coming up to your 35th one <laughs> before you get to the point where it hasn't killed me yet it probably isn't going to because <laughs> you do there are, there are points i remember one time um i had a bug it was really obviously a bug i had a sore throat blocked up nose and my blood sugar was just sky high and how the human body works i'm I've kind of pieced this together later. When it wants to fight an infection with a temperature, the way it gets a temperature is by making you hypo. And of course, me being diabetic, I am giving it enough insulin to bring you down a little bit, not too much. So I'm bringing it down to normal and it's going, well, no, I don't want that. I want to be hypo. So it gives you more insulin. And what it's trying to do is get that kickback. So you are giving little bits of insulin, little bits of insulin, trying to get the temperature down, get the, the blood sugar down. And your body's going, well, no, no, you're doing the wrong thing. I'm really sorry about this, but I'm going to go. And you get to a certain point, and you're in your 20s, and it's still not coming down. You are giving insulin. You tested the insulin. The insulin is still working because that's the point. There, is, there are points where people go, you have tested the insulin's working. So that's the first thing you do. Is the insulin working? Is the pump working? Am I doing everything right? So you're you're not using the pump anymore in case the pump is faulty. So you're winding it up and you're winding it up and everything seems to be working and nothing's working. So you're winding it up. And I got to half past two in the morning and it finally started to come back down. It come down half a millimole on the meter. 
I thought, fantastic, that's a win. I'm going to bed. <laughs> it's a Saturday night. I went to bed. And at 4.30, I came round and there were three ambulance crew in the room. <laughs> three ATs, two men and a woman. <laughs> and my husband and my and I'm, I'm going, Basilweight B, I'm trying to say Basilweight B because they've shut my pump off. And just, I changed my basal weight up to as much as I could, plus a, plus a corrective temporary measure. And that's, I had too much insulin in me and my body had gone great. <laughs> we're, we're now playing ball. <laughs> so it had stopped the release of sugar because that was doing, it wanted the hypo. But of course I had so much insulin in me, it was just catastrophic hypo. But I couldn't communicate. But even when I came round, I couldn't communicate because the, the brain has been through such a catastrophic starvation of sugar mm. for so long. It really is. Thinking, am I ever going to be? Yeah, yeah, I've effectively got locked in syndrome. There's a small amount of pain. Yeah, thank fuck. Yeah, thank fuck I'm alive. But you know, am I ever going to be able to talk again? (laughs) Thankfully, um, that would be a drag. Very difficult to do if you if if you weren't able to talk. Um. And and you're at work on Monday because after you've developed the temperature, of course, your body can get over the infection. So, <laughs> do you want know, just just in this what kind of hour hour forty that we've been on? Sorry, <laughs> I've learned I've learned more about type one. I, mean, I know I'm, I've always known a reasonable amount about autoimmune conditions, just because it's I find it quite interesting. Um, but I've never really known that much about about type one. Um, so it's been a really a really good, interesting conversation. So. Um, yeah, thank you very much for for kind of joining in and and giving us all that that knowledge and the experiences that you've had. I'm sure I'm sure there'll be many people that will will like to uh, uh, kind of listen to all the different experiences and realise that actually there is a a light at the end of the tunnel and you can you can kind of get through this and and you can be oh okay uh, in the realms of of living with your condition so i think that's a, a really positive thing that you've done i might actually get to 80 you, which i would hope you do <laughs> um i always ask a couple of questions though just before we wrap up uh, as you might have heard on the other podcasts so first one is is looking back and i think this is quite quite an interesting one given given uh, your your history but what what advice would you give um, your five-year-old self or or perhaps even your four-year-old self in, in, in this uh, situation? I think my five-year-old self, because I turned five pretty quickly after. Yeah. I would give my five-year-old self a big hug and I'd pat me on the head and say, it's going to be all right, kid. You got this. I think that is salient advice, particularly for what you now know and, and that you do get through it. Um very good. And the other one is then it's a dinner party. Uh, we all have a dinner party. And again, it's it's an interesting one um, with with your your uh, kind of condition and how and how that would work. But you've got four chairs 
um, first of all, there that needs to be filled. So who are you going to have there, living living or dead? Um, obviously, we'd bring them back to life uh, so it wasn't, wasn't too grim. Um, but equally, what would you have? What would you have to eat? I quite like um, Charles Vesper because he was the chemist who actually extracted insulin the first time. He was the guy employed to, to, to make it happen. And I'd like to ask him how bloody difficult was it? <laughs> Ardy Lawrence, because Ardy Lawrence pioneered how we treat type 1 in the UK. He founded um, with H.G. Wells the BDA, British Diabetes Association, right, which okay. is the name of Diabetes UK. And he also founded was one of the founders of the International Diabetic Federation. Right. Because part of me would like to slap him around the head and say, you should have set the goal higher. We, we've been slightly retarded in the UK with our approach to goals. Um, so he was all for empowerment, he was all for knowledge, and I, that's what I would like. I'd quite like my mum... I'd like her when she was 20 before she had me and before she went through all the shit because I'd like to see what she was actually like. <laughs> yeah, okay, I like that. <laughs> Which is a bit of an odd one. <laughs> no, I get that. I really get that. And I could oh, also say, you know, there are things you shouldn't do with this. There are things you did right, but there are things you didn't do right. So that's what I'd like to do. And... The fourth one is very difficult because they're kind of my heroes. They're kind of the people who made it happen for me. But I think, I think I quite like my husband though. Yeah. Because he's good company. <laughs> Which, why would you not ultimately? That would be a, <clears throat> a definitely a, a very knowledgeable table. It'd be a conversation. I think that'd be quite an interesting conversation. And what, and I'm, and what I'm sorry for my current endocrinologist because I love my endocrinologist. <laughs> I, I have two and it's very difficult to separate one of them out. Yeah. <laughs> and I and feel what, that'd be kind of a business lunch for them. <laughs> well, there is that, isn't there? <laughs> they'd, they'd be asking all the, all the medical questions. Um but, well, they'd also be telling the other two, you're wrong about that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be a bit heartbreaking, I think. Um, but, yeah, I think that that would be interesting. Uh, I'd like the history, um, really. What would you eat? Well, because my husband doesn't like fish, I love fish. So I would quite like, um, I love scallops. So I'd have scallops as starter. And then I'd probably have... Um, I quite like a goat's cheese um, quiche. I love goat's cheese quiche. I'm not big on desserts. That a, a cheese platter as a, as a pudding and some fruit as a pudding, that would be so people have got an option. It's all yours. Yeah, and a bottle of champagne, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be a dinner party without it, I suppose. Excellent. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for for kind of coming on and and sharing your your insights into into diabetes and your own story and and the 
the kind of highs and lows in many ways, literally, um, of it. Um, I say it's, it's been, been really, really, uh, really fascinating. So thank you very much. I always send my guests away with, with three things with love, kindness, and compassion. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you friends. That's all we've got time for today. I'm sure you have enjoyed uh, today's episode. And if you did, please make sure you rate uh, the episode and the show's five stars on whatever platform you might be listening on. And of course, please share your own stories and your own um, kind of thoughts and feelings of the episodes in the reviews. You can also find me um, on I am Gavin Clark and that's Clark with an E over on Instagram and you can search for The Safe Place uh, on there too it's a safe place podcast but for now I'll send you away with love kindness and compassion speak soon <laughs>